What do you hear the Lord saying in the days during which you and I are currently living? I think it's important that I ask that question. Um, If you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you're going to find the most frequently repeated command in the Bible regarding um, the Holy Spirit. And it is stated this way. Uh, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let, let those that have ears to hear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And I find it very uh, compelling that Jesus Christ in Revelation 2 and 3 um, commanded us as believers to listen for what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. And I think um, that means something. (laughs) Like when we read things in the Bible, it has to mean something. And the only option to disregard those statements, and again, I will submit to you, it's the most frequently repeated command regarding the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And it is you need to listen for his voice and discern what he's saying. And so I ask the question again. What are you hearing the Holy Spirit say? Now, I come from a prophetic uh, community. Um, I began my journey as a follower of Jesus as a Baptist, was trained in the authority of the Word of God, and I learned God's voice from the Bible, which is where you need to learn God's voice. And from that foundation of the authoritative written Word of God, having learned his voice, having known what he has said, which is also what he is saying, from there you are equipped, once you know the written word, to discern the rhema, the spoken word, the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Logos is the written word. Rhema is the whispered word. That's the way I like to say it. Because Jesus is not done talking to his people. He said, I know my sheep and they know my voice. They know me. I know them. They know my voice. He didn't merely say they learned my book. He said they will know my voice. And so it's very important for all of us to be discerning what is the Lord saying. Now, he can be saying many things, but when you are in a local assembly, uh, serving, worshiping, advancing the kingdom, praying, giving, raising up people, training, equipping, evangelizing. When you are doing the works of the kingdom together, it is impossible for the Lord to be saying one thing to a group of people in a church and something contradictory to another group of people in that same church. Somebody is not discerning what the Lord is saying. So it's very important that as we pursue the Lord as individuals, we also um, begin to employ means by which we can discern the Lord's voice to the local churches that we um, have entered into some level of covenant with uh, our faith family. And we, we have to come together and say, what is God saying to this assembly? 
And if you've got competing voices saying different things on behalf of the Lord, I'll just easily diagnose that somebody's in their flesh. Somebody is assuming that the thoughts of their own heart, what they feel, uh, what they think, or they presume that whatever they as individual believers are passionate about must be the singular thing that the Lord is emphasizing in any given season. And a lot of that just stems from immaturity. Um, Many times, uh, what is the thing that I am the most passionate about in the kingdom personally as a follower of Jesus and even as a leader in the kingdom, those things that I am personally most passionate about aren't always what the Lord is emphasizing in any given season. There are other times where I can look and say, oh, he's actually not highlighting that to this assembly at this time. So I need to align myself with what the Lord is saying and doing rather than presuming that um, he's always got to make my passions be the front of the line for everybody else in the assembly. So the reason why I'm asking you this is right now, this is what I hear the Lord saying um, to me. And I do believe he's saying it for me. It's instructional, but I'm beginning to believe also he's saying it personally to um, Antioch Outpost where I have the joy and privilege of serving as the senior leader here. Um, I have been in the book of Revelation chapter number two and studying the church at Ephesus and the message that Jesus sent to the church at Ephesus in the opening verses of Revelation chapter number two. And the Lord commends them in so many things, that ancient city of Ephesus that was a city that is not unlike the culture in which you were living. It was very decadent. It was very carnal. It was extremely pagan. It was quite immoral. Um, It was hyper-religious. The temple of Artemis was there. And um, it was also very prosperous. And so it was very much like your metropolitan American cities of, of today. And in the midst of that city was a remnant of people that were pursuing the Lord. And they had, um, as a church, had been founded, I don't know, 40 or 50 years prior to Jesus speaking in Revelation 2 to them. And um, they were an amazing church. The book of Ephesians, of course, was written to the Christians there at Ephesus. And some 40 or 50 years after that, we, we have Jesus addressing them. And he's commending them on their hard work, their doctrinal discernment, that they stood hard against sin, that they didn't give up, they didn't quit, they didn't uh, uh, walk away from Christ. So they were very busy. But then, you know, remember, that's the church to whom he said, I've got something against you, though. Now, hold on, throw on the brakes. When Jesus says, hey, you guys are doing an awesome job in a lot of areas, but but I need you to address something, this fatal flaw that I see that if it's not addressed, it's going to literally, he says this in, in Ephesians 2, ver, excuse me, in Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. He says, if you don't address this, it's going to be the end of you. That That ought to grip us. Jesus is saying, y'all are doing an awesome job in so many areas, but hey, I've got one issue that I need to point out to you. And if you don't repent and address this, I'm going to shut you down. Go and read the verses. That's exactly what he says. You know what the issue is? They had abandoned the love that they had originally had when they were new in Christ. He's speaking it over the Ephesian believers. So he's getting 
a panoramic view of their history as a once fiery and loved church. Ones that had um, been in love with him, been in love with each other, been in love with the lost so that they might be saved, been in love with the mission that they had been assigned. There was a purity and a pristine love in their hearts so that they were not just merely busy and active and dutiful, but they were doing it with a motivation of love. And Jesus, here he is like 40, 50 years later, he's saying, hey, I know you guys are unaware of it, but you have abandoned your love that you had at the first. Isn't that amazing that the Lord had to tell them that? Who knows? Maybe they were somewhat aware of it, but one of the dangers of being faithful and serving and dutiful and loyal and hating wickedness like the church at Ephesus did, according to Jesus' commendation of them. He said, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We're not really positive about who the Nicolaitans were, but Jesus said, you hate their deeds that I also hate. So he was saying, you're not only loyal in what you're doing, you're loyal to me and that you're willing to make a stand against sinfulness that I also hate. And you know, when you're faithful, and you're doctrinally discerning, and you're busy, and you're tireless, and you're relentless, and you don't quit, and you're moving and doing all of the things that, you know, we're to do as kingdom servants, you know, you'd think you'd get an A plus, right? That's because we often look at the exterior and say, well, if I'm busy, I must be blessed. And Jesus says, not so fast. He says to them, You're doing this in an absence of love, and that will be fatal. So I'm pretty gripped by this. I hear the Lord saying it because um, I don't know that I have ever been in a busier season personally in life and ministry. Um, I get tired. I don't know that I stay weary, but I do get tired mentally. I get tired emotionally. I get tired um, in my body. And, um, weariness is a constant temptation for me as it is with many of you, because we don't believe in idleness. We don't believe, no, listen, I believe in rest. I make no apologies for it. I carve out times of rest for me. I'm not trying to prove to anybody that I'm Superman. Like I need rest. I make rest. You'll have a hard time getting me to do anything ministry oriented on a Saturday. And I've done that for years. Not that I am a Sabbatarian thinking, okay, I got to, I got to have Saturdays as the Sabbath, but Saturday is the best day to rest and prepare for Sunday. And so I very rarely engage in any ministry activities. I almost don't do anything at all on a Saturday after about three o'clock in the afternoon. And, um, so I don't make any apologies for that, but in the midst of all of the busyness with, um, our church, Antioch Outpost, uh, even with Transforming Truth, which is the media ministry that Mavericks and Misfits is situated under, it's under that umbrella. Uh, Transforming Truth, um, you know, is the the media arm of my teaching ministry. And then when you also add to that uh, Caneo Ministry Training Center, um, those are three, you could probably say four if you wanted to count Mavericks and Misfits on its own, but those are three fairly significant ministries that I have leadership um, responsibilities in. And it keeps me very busy, but 
recently the Lord's uh, highlighted to me, Jeff, busy does not necessarily equal blessable. Hear me? You can be busy, but not necessarily blessable. And so as I have been studying 1 Corinthians 13, which the last podcast was about, I just want to follow up on this issue about love. And some of you get bored with that. And that's fine because you are action oriented and you need something a little more practical. But I would just ask you to maybe consider listening to this. Give me 15 more minutes and just consider listening to this because if we're doing all this stuff, if we are faithful and sacrificial and responsible and reliable and competent and zealous, those are all good things. You should be those things. But we can't be those things and then start looking around and say, hey, where's, where's the love that I had at the first? That was Jesus' indictment of the church at Ephesus. Like me and you, we'd probably be, at least initially, pretty impressed with that church at Ephesus. You and I, maybe on the surface, would not have been able to see that these people were operating like loveless slaves instead of sons and daughters that were crazy in love with their Redeemer and King. So Jesus wasn't good with that. He didn't like that. As a matter of fact, his words were so strong that the end thing was his like, hey, I'm pointing this out to you. And if you don't repent, and when he said repent of the lovelessness that they were now operating in, and he didn't say they lost their love. The Greek word is actually stronger. It says they left it. They abandoned it. They chose activity over intimacy with the Lord. And man, who among us has not gone through a season where that's been the case? And the whole point of it is not to just shame us and make us feel guilty. It's Jesus saying, hey, I want you to stop that. And then when he said repent, he said, go and do the things that you did at the beginning. And he doesn't specify what those things are, which causes us to go down memory lane and say, how was it at the beginning? How was it when I first knew him? How was it when he first saved me? How was it when I learned that I could be a part of what God was doing in the world? How was my heart towards the church? How was my heart toward unbelievers? How was my heart towards praying? How was my heart towards sharing my faith? How was my heart towards reading and studying the scriptures? How was my heart towards giving? You know, time does not necessarily equal maturity. As a matter of fact, if you're not careful, the longer you are walking with Jesus, the higher the risk can become to you just operating robotically. You're just being faithful, but you're not enjoying him anymore. A lot of marriages get that way. Amy and I have been married a little over 25 years, and uh, we have had every season that you can have in marriage, uh, you know, that's possible. We've had the passionate, powerful, popping love. Hello. We have had those seasons where life was so heavy that we're just checking in with each other from week to week. 
We've had times where we've been distant from each other. We've been, had other times where we've looked each other in the eye and held hands and just said, we're going to do this. We're going to, we're going to, you know, kick the devil in the teeth and it's us against the world. But the one thing that I found is that if we did not remain diligent, we would just operate under the same roof with the same last name and uh, we wouldn't be in love. And so one of the things that I've had to commit to, especially in recent years, is like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's not just enough to provide. It's not just enough to give structure. It's not just enough to keep everybody sheltered, fed, and clothed. The love thing is important. And as it is in our marriages, it is also in our relationship with the Lord. So what does it look like when we're repenting and operating in that first love? Well, there's a couple of different directions I could go. Who knows? I might do another podcast on this, but let me just talk about when I am operating in love. Cause Jesus said, you've abandoned your first love, but he doesn't specify the object of that first love. So is it our first love that we had with him? Is it our first love that we had with fellow believers, other people in the faith, include your family, those that you go to church with? Have we abandoned our first love for the body of Christ, the local assembly, the local church? I see that happening constantly. It's a mark at the end of the age too, by the way. That's why Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 commands us that as we get closer to the return of Christ, that we more and more prioritize the gathering together with the saints. You guys that don't do that, you need to consider that you are living in disobedience to a very clear teaching in scripture. It doesn't matter what your reason is for it. The Bible says, as the day of the Lord approaches, we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves, but all the more, meaning up your game, your commitment. So have we lost our first love to the church? Have we lost our love for the lost? Are we just now mad at all the heathens? Are you just bitter because of all the sin and the aggressiveness? Well, those are the people that Jesus came and died for. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came not for the righteous, but for the lost and depraved. And so have we, instead of loving them, gone bitter. So I, I could go with a lot of different um, little angles today, but let me just, let's just talk about, do we love each other? Because Jesus said that the unbelieving world would know that we belong to him by the love that we showed to one another. And that means Christian on Christian love. And it's not always easy because Christians don't magically become people that live in uniformity. We're to live in unity, but we're not exactly alike. We are very diverse in a whole, whole host of different array of, of, of areas in our life. We're very different. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, which I shared in the last podcast, I hope you'll go back and listen to that if you didn't, because it kind of set the table for this one. But remember these words, just, I'm, you know, listen. I know you know these, but I want you to remember what Jesus said in Revelation 2. The people that he was addressing were unaware that they had left love. They were unaware of it. Or worse, they were aware of it, but thought, who cares? So either way, they needed a correction and a reminder and so it does us good to walk through 1 Corinthians 13 and let God tell you what love looks like. And then we say, am I being this type of person in my relationships with others? And I'm speaking primarily here of Christians 
towards Christians. Do we love each other like this? Because God's word says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient. That means if I'm loving somebody, I'm bearing with a person's worst behavior at times. Without retaliation, regardless of circumstances, love makes me patient with the object of my love. Love is kind. That means diligently seeking ways to be actively used by God in another person's life for their benefit. We're showing kindness. Kindness is probably one of the rarest jewels in our culture these days. It's hard to find people that are genuinely kind, especially kind unto those that on the surface or in the natural don't deserve it. So love's patient and love is kind. So I ask the question, am I patient and am I kind? And am I working towards being that? Because it's not a feeling. It's me aligning with what God says love is. It's you aligning with it. You're not waiting for your emotions to tell you to obey what God says. And by the way, these aren't actually commands. Let me just go ahead and say that, especially if you guys that are, are very Bible-oriented and want right interpretation of Scripture. These aren't imperatives. They're called indicatives, meaning they don't command us. They indicate what love is. And so if I am a person, a Christian operating in love, then I will be patient. I will be kind. And if I'm not, that's where the action item is. Oh, what did Jesus say in Revelation chapter two? In Revelation chapter two, he said, repent and do the works that you did at the beginning. So back in first Corinthians 13, it's not only love is not only patient and kind, but love does not envy. Like that means if if we're loving, we are delighting in the esteem and honor given to somebody else without fuming that it wasn't given to us. Envy is of the devil. Like you got to get radical, crucify that. And so if you're free from envy, it is likely that you're much more suited to love somebody. I can't love somebody that I'm envious of because that means what they have I want. That's a terrible, that's an un-Jesus-like thing. Love doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. Um, that means love doesn't draw attention to oneself at the exclusion of others. Love doesn't think that one is more important than others. It's not arrogant. Guys, I'm not more important than you. You're not more important than me. We're to esteem others more important than ourselves in the proper and healthy way. Love doesn't boast. It's like, listen, it's such a freedom to wake up every day and say, oh, today's not about me. Today is about my God and other people. God will, in his way, make it about me. But if I make it about me, God won't make it about me. And so if I make it about me, God will let me expend all my energy making it about me and it still won't satisfy. But if I make it about God and because I'm making it about God, I'm making it about others. That means I'm going to be free from a boastful arrogance where everything has to reflect well on me. Love is not rude. That means when we're operating in love, we're not engaging anybody with any ungodly attitudes or ungodly words or ungodly acts actions coming from our lives. We're just not going to be rude to people. Isn't it amazing that the word of God, the eternal God of all the ages, supernatural signs and wonders, the unfathomable mystery of creation. How did he create everything out of nothing? And all of this 
just mind-blowing, immeasurable, stunning material proceeding from the infinite being of God. And that same God looks at you and says, when you're walking in love, you won't be rude to people anymore. <laughs> that does not allow our, our, our faith to stay up in the clouds. God's like, bring down your faith from the clouds and strap some sandals on it and walk it out. Don't be rude. Love doesn't insist on its own way. These are all in 1 Corinthians 13, by the way. I'm just reading you what the scripture says. Love doesn't insist on its own way. Again, that's going back to, it doesn't have to be about you anymore. I mean, we're actually actively seeking the highest good of another, sometimes even at the expense of ourselves. We don't insist on our own way. We, we trust God that when he wants to, he will make it about us. And our job is to esteem others more important than ourselves. That's just Philippians. Philippians teaches that. Love's not irritable. Man, that one gets me all the time. I'm, you know, I've, I've got the reputation of being kind of grumpy. I'm really not grumpy. I'm usually preoccupied, so it doesn't present me as soft. I've had people tell me over the years, you're not very approachable. Pastors need to be approachable. And I, you know, I'll tell them now. I didn't tell them back in the day because I used to just receive that accusation and just be like, oh, man, I'm a jacked up pastor. Well, here's the thing. I'm actually not a pastor. I don't have any of that grace in my life. Every fivefold gift test I've ever taken, pastor's the lowest. Now, the problem is, is that we call every primary leader in a local church a pastor. And so people come to the table thinking this is what a pastor should be like. And so when, when I'm locked into more of an apostolic or a prophetic or a teaching moment, it requires all my energy. I, I sometimes don't, <laughs> I don't respond with the heart of a pastor. Some of you guys are pastoral and y'all flow in that. And the rest of us have to work hard at even trying to find like six ounces of that kind of pastoral uh, relational flow. But here's the thing. You can't just walk around and be irritable. Irritable is not a gift that is assigned to any of the fivefold offices or to any Christian. Irritability is of the flesh. And so more than once in my life, the Lord has said to say, Hey, Jeff, you just left that conversation irritated. You irritated them. You irritated the situation. You're irritated. That's not love. So we can't just default and say, well, that's just the way I'm wired. Well, look, that's why we're told to deny ourselves. <laughs> well, God made me irritable. Well, he actually didn't. But if you believe that, if that's the way you are, then deny that. Just deny yourself because that is not love. Love isn't resentful. That's 1 Corinthians 13 also. Love is not resentful. What does that mean? Love never keeps a record of wrongs done by others. Like There is no exception to that. We forgive as we've been forgiven. And if you live in resentment, you need to return and do the first works. I remember when I got saved, man, I was so glad to be forgiven. I just walked around forgiving everybody. I had a lot of grudges. I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of hurt, a lot of wounds and stuff. And when I realized that Jesus had comprehensively washed me from all of my guilt, shame, and judgment, I'm like, oh, I got to give this away. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. And by the grace of God in my life, I don't know, you know why this grace has been so strong in my life. I'm able to easily forgive. It's just a grace because I don't think 
I was remotely like that before I got saved. But when I experienced his love for the first time, and that love was expressed to me in this lavish wash of forgiveness, I realized I don't have any legitimate right to hold anybody else hostage to their wrongdoings against me when God, who has been vastly more offended by my actions has forgiven me completely. How could I hold a lesser violation against me by somebody else? How could I hold them guilty? So resentful is not con- resentment is not consistent with love. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. So we never delight in another person's downfall. We don't delight when our enemy gets caught in the snare of sin and gets exposed to personal failure. Why? Because love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Love rejoices in truth, 1 Corinthians 13. Like we find great joy when truth prevails in somebody else's life. Like that's a good thing. And we rejoice in what the word of God says is true. And we rejoice when truth and reconciliation happen. And when there's division and truth comes in and love kind of coats that truth, then we have the opportunity to rejoice. When that doesn't happen, what do we do? Well, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that, Love bears all things. It just means you don't go public with somebody else's failures. Um, love covers a multitude of sins is found in another place in scripture, but it's the same thing here. Love just puts up with people's junk. Like you don't go public with it. Like it's, it's, it, you ought to really, really slow down when you're tempted to give an aha, I gotcha moment because you don't want that happening to you. And there's probably plenty of stuff on your hidden history, like in life, your life resume, that God intentionally covered for your benefit. So you ought to be real careful to operate in that kind of love and bear with all things. That just means you endure it. Love believes all things. What does that mean? It means when I'm walking in love, I'm going to have an unshakable commitment to believe the best about others give them the benefit of the doubt some of y'all are just too suspicious skeptical you always find something that gives you permission not to give yourself to something you're looking for 100 percent clarity and guaranteed um, blessing on your part before you give yourself to something that's not love that's control Love believes all things. Love goes into it and says, I'm going to give this person the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't mean you're gullible and you're foolish and you keep going back to the same whipping post. That's not what we're talking about. What we're saying is when you don't have a valid objective reason to distrust, you give others the benefit of the doubt. Love hopes all things. Do you still have that hope that you had when you first got saved? Have you gotten jaded? Have you gotten skeptical? Have you gotten suspicious and cynical? Because, man, this is like a cutthroat world, and the enemy wants to rob you of hope, wants to condense the kingdom down to a a size of a kernel of wheat. And just, I can only trust me. I can only trust my God. I can't trust people. I can't put myself out there anymore. I can't risk it anymore. It's not worth it anymore. And you start writing people off when you lose hope. Like you experience some pain in your local church and instead of working in love to rectify that thing, according to all the principles that we've just gone through from 1 Corinthians 13, people lose hope and they just take their ball and go home. They quit. 
people just get to the point, well, churches are all jacked up and none of them are real. It's all fake. It's all hypocritical. It's all phony. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, the omniscient son of God who is perfectly holy has never walked away from the church. And all of the sins of the church are primarily against him. And he's never walked away. He's never quit. 2,000 years. He's never said, this is getting ridiculous. I am done. And yet some people take the supposed moral high ground and spiritual high ground and they walk away from churches and never go back. And that's wrong. That is not love. That's self-preservation. It's arrogance. It's entitlement. And at its core, it's disobedience. Why? Because love endures. Love bears with all things. Love hopes all things. Love forgives. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love takes risks. And then ultimately, I'll just finish here. Love outlasts and endures all things. That's where Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, he's like, prophecies will cease. Tongues will cease. But love endures forever. So the beauty of this is when, when Christ returns, we won't need tongues. We won't need prophecies. We won't need signs. We won't need wonders. When the kingdom comes in its fullness, all of the gifts, all of the duties, all of the servanthood moments in the strictest sense of the world, uh, word, all of the advance of the gospel, all, listen, you won't even need faith when the kingdom comes because faith will have become sight. But when all of those things cease, love won't. Love is the enduring atmosphere for the Christian's eternal existence. And guys, churches need to hear this. Christians need to hear this. Maybe you and I need to hear this just fresh. So how are you walking in love? And might you need to do the thing that Jesus commanded in Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7 when he commanded the church at Ephesus. You need to repent and go back and do it the way you did at the beginning. And if you don't, I'm just going to remove your lampstand. That's kind of a sobering way to end the podcast. But what Jesus was saying is, I don't actually need a church that is busy but loveless. I don't actually really have a place in my, my kingdom for servants that are constantly in motion but have no love. And so the promise from the Son of God is kind of sobering. It doesn't have to happen, though. That's the awesome thing. He's saying, hey, if you won't repent, if you won't make love a priority, then I'll be forced to take this away from you. But I, I believe that you'll respond to what I'm saying because you that overcome, I'm going to make you a pillar in the kingdom of God. So maybe take some time and read Revelation 2, 1 through 7, and um, just ask God to reveal your heart to you. Um, as I close, I want to just uh, encourage you, get back in the house of the Lord. Stop doing the once a month pop into church. Your church needs you. It's a place that's going to become more and more precious as the heat gets turned on, as persecution arises. Don't be separated. Wolves always look for sheep that are separated from the flock. And so I want you to be um, mature and consistent. Serve one another with a wholehearted fervency in love to both Jesus Christ, our King, and to one another. We'll talk to you next time on Mavericks and Misfits. Have you picked up a copy of Jeff's book, Figuring It Out As I Go? 
his life story of abandonment as a child, an embrace of the occult and addiction as a teenager, and a nearly deadly battle with depression and rage as a young adult serves as an intense backdrop to Jeff's supernatural conversion at the age of 24. From there, Jeff writes of powerful seasons of deliverance, healing, and breakthrough, which were followed by tragedy, betrayal, and deep challenges which only God could turn around. If you want to hear a powerful account of the triumph of God's grace and Jeff's surprising journey into the mysteries of the Holy Spirit, pick up a copy of Figuring It Out As I Go at jefflyle.com or wherever else you buy books. You can also download a copy of Jeff narrating Figuring Out As I Go on audible.com.